You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Ari Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Daniel Bessner. Uh, Daniel, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Daniel Bessner. I uh, am the Pyle Associate Professor in American Foreign Policy at the University of Washington. I'm a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And uh, recently, uh, I was uh, uh, happily for me, I was made a contributing editor at Jacobin Magazine. Uh, well, uh, congratulations on those some of those recent uh, appointments, uh, which I, I think the last time you were on, which was a little over a year ago with me, um, you didn't have all those. So uh, that's good. Obviously, a lot of other things have changed in the world since. Uh, great for me <laughs> since that time. Um, so, so thanks for coming back on. Uh, so we're going to be talking about a couple topics today: some political, some maybe more historical. Uh, but the first one is uh, uh, related to the hat you're wearing. Uh, you know, Bernie. And Biden, uh, why did Bernie lose? Was Bernie's loss inevitable? So you, um, so a little, a little maybe like behind the scenes or uh, sharing dirty laundry or something. You uh, sent me a message like three, like two or three months ago when, during that brief period of about two weeks when it seemed like Bernie was going to win the uh, nomination. And you mentioned that you had predicted this in our last conversation and we found the link and I tweeted it out saying, well, maybe I was wrong about this. And in that clip, which I just re- rewatched, re-listened to, um, I was saying, you know, Biden is going to be formidable. People just have a good feeling about him because they remember that he was Obama's vice president. And uh, so they're kind of like, oh, he's that guy who smiles a lot. And things were pretty good back then. And you made the case for Bernie. And then so 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 soon after, maybe maybe the turning point effect was when I tweeted that clip soon after, um, you know, uh, uh, the other candidates, the non-Bernie, non-Biden candidates started dropping out and endorsing, endorsing Biden and uh, and then very quickly, uh, Biden uh, ran away with it. So, yeah. okay. So, what what do you think happened? Why why did why did Bernie collapse so in Biden's understanding? And, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but my understanding is that it, it appears that some reporting has indicated that uh, Obama himself called various people involved in the Democratic uh, Party and the candidates themselves and recommended that if they don't drop out that there's a good chance that Bernie would win, um, and that seems to be important. Am I misremembering that? I've, I've seen conflicting stuff about that, how much uh, how Obama not, exerted himself. No, 100%, basically. Yeah, it seems like he maybe did something, but, um, you know, it wasn't a public, it wasn't public, and it also, um, you know, it's unclear what, like, what is his, what is Obama's power behind the scenes, Sure. At this point, he's obviously still a very popular figure within the party and nationally, but as a behind-the-scenes player, I don't know really. He seems to have withdrawn from politics mostly. Like he's doing this Netflix production thing. Like I, so so yeah, I don't know. The proud tradition of recent Democratic presidents and making a ton of money. Right. Um, but uh, my, my guess as, as a historian who, who's studied some of the things, I, I bet you there was something behind the scenes. Um, not to, not in a conspiratorial way. I mean, this is just what interest groups do. Uh, there's been significant leaks from the Obama camp from several months ago that he said if, if it looked like Bernie was going to win the nomination, he would actually uh, throw his hat into the ring in some meaningful sense and try to shape co- the course of events. My guess is something along those lines happened. My guess is that there were some backroom uh, discussions between the DNC, uh, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and the people who were dropping out. 
that they would be rewarded with various sinecure, uh, sinecures if Biden were to win. Um, and this is I, I don't see this as uh, this is just normal politics right. in, in the United States. I, I don't mean to uh, I don't think this is cons- conspiracy. This is what interest groups are able to do. Um, I think that was very crucial. Um, I think that Warren not dropping out earlier uh, is probably pretty crucial as well without sort of coming out uh, very strongly in favor of Bernie. Uh, it made it difficult to, to coalesce a left wing opposition to Biden uh, in the particular two weeks where this was all going down. Um, and I think that uh, Bernie's uh, loss was was not inevitable. Um, I, again, I'm a historian. I think nothing is truly inevitable. Uh, there's a series of historical contingencies that go uh, around it. But I think it was it was always an uphill battle, as I've described it to um, a friend. And I think I might have actually talked about this on another podcast. In some sense, as I see it, um, for for someone who is actually a socialist. Um, as, as, as you know, I am a democratic socialist or a social democrat. Not really sure that there's that much of a difference between them, but let's say there is. Um, I think that Bernie's campaign was always a bit of a Hail Mary pass in that it attempted to basically circumvent decades of institution building and building up support for a particular politics amongst the public in this sort of grand executive gesture. And so uh, in that sense, it's not – shocking that Bernie lost because it's not like the left wing, in my personal opinion, is particularly strong in this country. Um, so um, but I don't think it was inevitable. And and one of the things that I want to add and for people who uh, heads viewers are probably familiar with this, but just in case they're not, um, there has been uh, basically since 1912 when Eugene Debs was a significant player in the in the 1912 presidential election, um, a concerted effort by the American government to basically tampen down the left wing. Debs was, of course, famously arrested during World War One. Uh, a lot of sort of anti-war agitators, anti-imperialist agitators were arrested. And then the series of the FBI, um, the, the actions of the FBI at home and the CIA abroad and just general government has been designed basically to weaken what I would consider to be a true left to the left of liberalism. So it's the, just to say, and then I'll wrap up rambling here, um, the left is institutionally weak in this country. It doesn't have a huge base of support amongst the public particularly I would argue because of the Cold War and you had 50 years of intense anti-communism, you know, infecting people's minds. And so the Bernie campaign was always a bit of a Hail Mary. Um, so that's what I would say about that. Yeah, that that mostly makes sense to me. Um, you know, I think the so kind of the mistakes, not that Bernie made, but that the people outside observing who who thought that like Bernie had this because it really was like a 10 day period or so where it seemed like Bernie was going to win. Like he won, he won some big States. Uh, so I think he won, did he, he won at least two of the four early States. Right. He won Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, right? Well, there was, okay. So Iowa was this weird, like kind of semi tie and it was a hard to, this huge fuck oh. up. So who knows whether Bo- won the judge or yeah, but yeah. yeah. So then he won New Hampshire and then he won California. Um, mm-hmm. also, um, but California came out on the day where Biden won a ton. So that was like dampened. And that was uh, – oh, and another thing about Bernie is that the media clearly didn't want him to win. Um, and I don't think that the, the – I mean it's just like the media is capitalist. They're sort of like equivalent. They have a particular set of assumptions about how the world should work. And so it was pretty clear that they weren't particularly pro-Bernie and that I don't think helped the campaign to say the least. Right. And – OK. So I think – one one conceptual mistake was uh, looking at 2016 and saying like, okay, Bernie won something like you know 45 or so percent 
of the Democratic primary vote, and like that's basically his base, and he can expand from there. So I think we we saw that really a lot of that, not a lot of it, some significant percentage of that was anti-Clinton voting, oh, um, yeah. and which I think it was harder to realize at the time how you know disliked Hillary Clinton was in the uh, vast populace uh, on on both sides. Um, and then you know he also, I mean, like you know he is a like ideological, ideologically committed candidate of which there aren't many. Uh, he really believes this stuff, and he's not going to compromise on what he believes for the sake of politi- political expediency. So he could have done some sort of compromise where he said, you know, basically, if you like your insurance, you can keep it. Um, but he didn't. He stuck with, you know, like, you're going to lose your insurance, but you're going to get this great government-supplied insurance, and it's going to be great. So for a, lot, for a lot of people, that is a scary proposition. They're going to lose something they know, even though we all know that, like, you know, your employer can change at any time. If you lose your job, you can lose your insurance, but it's still like, that's just a bad message. So there, so there are things like that, that he stuck to, um, that were not necessarily like broadly popular in the party. Uh, but he, you know, he stuck to them. So I think that's part of it. So it's funny that uh, re-listening to this clip from a year ago of you and me, uh, you're talking about the, um, the, uh, anti-Biden ads that could, someone could make. And then the anti-Bernie ads that someone could make and the anti-Biden ads would be like, uh, Biden haranguing Anita Hill, uh, saying things that are like equivocal on abortion access and, you know, a couple of uh, Iraq war support and stuff like that. And what's weird is that, and this is something I was joking about on Twitter for like the entire length of the campaign, you know, no one really went frontally at Biden uh, until the very end. And they were all fighting each other. They were fighting Mayor Pete. Uh, they were fighting Kamala when Biden was there with his 30% support like the entire time and no one wanted to attack him. It's kind of weird. Um, and I analogized it to the, you know, the metaphor of Game of Thrones where the uh, the people uh, in the kingdoms were fighting each other while the White Walkers were uh, north north of the wall. That's the real threat. So Biden would have been the, the White Walkers and, you know, Pete Buttigieg would have been uh, the Iron Islands or whatever. And they're all just fighting each other. If you, if you were paying attention to the kind of like, the, I mean, it's hard to know how much the Twitter discourse matters, but like there was a, you know, it seemed like people decided that, like, okay, now is our time to focus our hatred. People being like left Twitter, focus our hatred on Mayor Pete. When Mayor Pete was not ever really like, a true threat, and this guy was a mayor of a town of a hundred thousand people, is not going to become the nominee. So yeah, so no one really frontally took on Biden. And then we talked about what the um, the anti Bernie ads could be, and we mentioned like I think you mentioned it uh, things you know things he said about Fidel Castro in the nineteen seventies, and it turned out that like one of the big anti Bernie things ended up being like this strange quote that he gave about, you know, praising the literacy programs in Castro's Cuba. And, and then Bernie kind of like stuck to that. Like, like he really still believes in the literacy programs of Castro's Cuba, even though like any, like, you know, any political uh, messaging person would tell him like Bernie, just say like, you know, I disavow anything that Fidel Castro ever did. Like, no, Bernie, Bernie believes in it. He's too beautiful for this fallen world. Okay. So that's one of the, one of the interpretations of why Bernie lost is like St. Bernie. He's just too good. Like he is this pure being. I will. I, I think a couple of things. Uh, one one thing I want to make one point is that I think it's important because I think it, it sort of in, informs our analysis in a bad way. Where you said Bernie was an ideological candidate, I think it's important to be more specific. I think there are every candidate is ideological. It's just particular ideologies have become common sense, 
And so I think that it's important just to emphasize that, like Joe Biden's a profoundly ideological candidate. Pete Buttigieg is a profoundly ideological candidate. It's just their sort of bipartisan commitment to American empire and letting business run, et cetera, has become common sense in the United States since roughly the 1950s. So I think it's it's it, our political discourse is impoverished when we say Bernie's ideological and Biden isn't. So I just want to emphasize okay, that. Well, I guess more what I mean is Bernie is committed to a set of ideas is Mayor Pete committed to a set of ideas? Like, I don't really think so. Like, he, he at one point he endorsed Medicare I, for All uh, on, on Twitter, like, you know, before he became famous, and then he later disavowed it. So, so he is like... Aria, let's talk about the pathologies of our class. Um, <laughs> Pete Buttigieg is committed to a set of meritocratic principles about who should govern and when, and that is an ideology. That is what I would say. Pete Buttigieg thinks that the best and the brightest should govern the United States because Pete Buttigieg went to the same exact schools we did. He was taught in the same exact ideology that we were taught in, and that's what he believes. And that's an ideology, to believe that the best and the brightest should govern the world as opposed to, let's say, the democratic populace in the United States or govern the United States proper. That's an ideology. So I would say he is committed to a set of ideas, if not particularly substantive policy ideas about how the world works and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and the reason I say this, is I'm actually writing an article on meritocracy for the nation right now. And it's a profoundly crazy, but profoundly ideological thing to think. So I, I think that he is ideological, in fact, and all of them are ideological because you can't live in the world without having an ideology, which simply means a set of assumptions and ideas about how the world works and how policy should be implemented. Well, I think, I mean, I'm thinking of Donald Trump. Does Donald Trump live in the world without a set of ideas? I mean, John Trump's ideology is... Donald Trump is right, and that's everything. Like, goes from that. I think he. I think Trump believes a few things pretty seriously that the United States has been fucked over by foreign governments economically. I think he really believes that. I think he truly believes that the United States should not have immigration. I mean, like these are real ideas. If you see like where the Trump administration has made the most movements, it's in the things that Trump has been talking about for forty years. Now, it's he's not a particularly coherent thinker. He's not a particularly disciplined thinker. But he does have a set of ideological precepts about how the world should work. Absolutely. And to, in my opinion, to not admit that is to not admit the, the danger that he posed and continues to pose. He does believe things about immigration and, and, and capitalism in the world. Absolutely. Right. I, I know. I mean, I guess I would say, you know, Trump has I mean, Trump is an a, a unusual uh, psychology and he um, he has more uh, like he has like kind of prejudices um, that would be the common prejudice for, for his type of person. So like. You know he's a he's a rich old white man, so he doesn't like uh, you know Mexican immigrants. So I, that's is that ideology? I, I, it seems like it doesn't rise to rise to the, to the no, no, no. lofty As, label of ideology. In my opinion, Trump is a very particular ethnic white of his New York generation, who grew up in a very particular context in the '40s, '50s, and '60s. And dealt with people in a particular way. I mean, I'm from Queens as well, <laughs> so I mean, Trump is very legible to me, you know. And, right. And, okay. So there's yeah, there's a part where it's like, yeah, he he, acts, probably, he yeah. acts like an outer borough asshole, uh, but also there's the part where like he, you know, thinks he's the um, you know smartest guy in the world who could like invent a idea to like inject you know inject bleach into someone who's dying of coronavirus and like he th he's like as he's saying this he's like yeah this is a good idea that i should keep on talking about but let, okay let's put that okay let's put that to, to okay so to turn to the bigger points okay <laughs> two things one thing about bernie uh let's go to biden then i'll make the big point i want to make about bernie so with biden 
Um, I think he is a weak candidate, was always a weak candidate, and still is a weak candidate. And I think the quote-unquote strategic mistake that left Twitter made was to be like, oh, man, the DNC might actually have a more dynamic person under 78. People are just liking Biden because he's recognizable, but over time, someone will rise to the fore. And what's really interesting, and I'm not sure if I talked about this with you, is the total failure of the Gen X politician who grew up in sort of the 1990s under a particular set of ideological precepts, 1990s and 2000s, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, what have you. Uh, And that generation is just going to be totally skipped over in terms of our politics. Um, And I think because the world that they grew up in no longer exists and and they couldn't do it. But with left Twitter, I thought, which is in retrospect, I mean, was not a crazy thing to think is that one of these people would have risen to the top. Biden's a weak candidate. He only succeeds when he's not shown. Even if he defeats Trump, he'll be a weak leader. He'll get nothing done and he'll do. I mean, so I, I actually don't think that left Twitter or, or, or has been really proven that wrong. So let's say Trump loses, which is very possible. Biden wins. What kind of president is he going to be? He's going to be Clinton version 3.0 after Obama was Clinton version 2.0. You're going to have Larry Summers in there. You're going to have Samantha Power, the secretary of state. And it's going to be, you know, the continuation of the nonsense. There's going to be no real serious uh, attempt to address the actual inequities caused by capitalism. I doubt there'll be a real serious attempt to address climate change or, or even something like pandemic as friend. It'll be like t- typical center left governance, which is, I think, not the, uh, the what we need at this moment. And what I think suggests that is the enormous generational divide between Democratic primary voters and who they supported and who they did. And we've never before seen that in history. This is unique in history. In the 1960s, in the 1970s, there was not this stark a generational divide between who supported whom. So you have basically everyone under 45 supporting Bernie and basically everyone over 45 supporting Biden. So this indicates a lot of interesting things. Most importantly, we can see where the politics of the next generation of quote unquote liberal and left wing people um, is going. And I would venture to argue as a historian, when people look back on this era in 50 years, Bernie Sanders is going to be a more important figure than uh, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden, just like Barry Goldwater was a crucially important figure in the 1964 election that basically got the people who transformed American politics in the 90s and beyond, Newt Gingrich, Mitt Romney, most importantly, into politics. So I think that even though Bernie might have lost in the short term, he has totally transformed American political discourse. Now, we did not win. And I think the left is is wrong to say that this is a victory. It is a loss. But now putting my historian hat on, which happens to say Bernie on it, he's an incredibly influential figure in American politics who will have already has had and will continue to have a really transformative um, effect on how younger people who will govern this country uh, view things. Now, what's also interesting, one thing I want to add is I wrote an uh, Guardian article in October. I think it was it was around the Kavanaugh hearings. Was that 2018? So October 2018, um, yeah, it was 2018, with David Austin Walsh from um, Aston Walsh from Princeton about gerontocracy. We also are uniquely in a period where the entire leadership of the Democratic Party is incredibly old. And so that is also unique, too. So you have, uh, unlike in the 60s and 70s, where you do have a sort of insurgent group, you have an older group of leaders who was very skeptical of Bernie, who liked Bernie personally, actually, for the most part, but who, again, grew up in a particular horror historical context, namely the Cold War, to which any mention of socialism or social democracy was anathema. So you have a lot of interesting things happening. And I do think that, um, I mean, of course, it matters Who's going to win in, 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 in the presidential election? I don't want to say it does, but in a larger historical sense, it almost doesn't matter as much as we think it does. Because I think 
politics has changed and politics has changed because of Bernie Sanders and the movement that arose around him. Okay. Just in pericles, in okay. Pericles. okay, so the, okay, so there's a lot there. I do think I mean Bernie could definitely be a Goldwater type figure and this is, you know, representing uh a hinge point for uh you know the left what what becomes of left and liberal part of the country. I I, I it seems contingent to me. I don't know what's I'm not I'm, I'm not going to predict that, but it but it seems it certainly seems possible. Um you know well, I, I think we maybe we even talked about this before. We did talk about the generational thing before, but like you know, Obama is somewhere. He's like on the line between Gen X and Boomer, um, and it, there's some weirdnesses because like uh, being grown up, growing up in Hawaii, and like you know, his mother must not have been a Boomer, but she basically acted like a Boomer. Um, so she, so I, Obama seems more Gen X to me, uh, but I agree that like you know, obviously all the Gen X politicians failed as did the one you know millennial <laughs> politician who was who, who was in the bunch um another thing i've known I, I tweeted this and no one seemed to care at all um you know biden is not a boomer um biden was born in like 43 uh so he is and he also like you know i mean he harkens back to old-fashioned values as much as like trump does at least rhetorically like you know make america great again could have been a biden slogan in an alternate reality um like and, and the thing is <laughs> what I think about Biden is like he actually believes this shit. Um, like, sure. whereas whereas Trump doesn't believe anything. Um, you like when Biden is talking about how great America is and like gets teary eyed. Like he he believes that. Um, so I, I I do think that that is a generational difference, and I guess that would make him a silent generation technically. Um, I mean, there's not that big a difference between being born in 1943 and 1946. I mean, like, these are artificial constructs. Right. Biden's still a teenager in the 50s and 60s. I mean, basically, he, slightly older. It's not that big a difference. Right, but his- he, I mean, I, he, did, did, he, did he participate in any sort of the classic 60s countercultural or, you know, protest movement type things? Like, he was already probably an established, you know, like, lawyer in Wilmington or whatever, at that time. And then, and then like on the city getting elected to the city council or, or whatever it was. And then, you know, he was like the youngest Senator when he, when he was elected and then suffered this family most, tragedy. Most boomers didn't participate in those things. Right. Uh, right. Like the overwhelming, I mean, our, again, our class of upper white middle, particularly Jews who were just entering into the American Academy participated in those things, but that's not, I mean, it's become down to us as the quote unquote capital E experience of the 60s, but it, it wasn't, which is, again, reflected in the fact that there was a lot of young conservatives as well. Right. You didn't see in the 60s this enormous generational divide. That is this is unique in American history. We've never seen this before. So there's not that really uh, too many analogies to make, even if like if our historical memory as a culture remembers the 60s as like Woodstock and smoking dope and hate Ashbury. That wasn't the experience for the overwhelming majority of Americans, regardless of race. Right, um, but like, but like, I mean, something like, um, I guess we, I have to think of the math. Like, when you know, was was he ever? He was never. He's never served in the military. Uh, why was that? Maybe he got married too young to be drafted. So if he was born in forty three, he would have been, you know, twenty five in nineteen sixty eight. If I'm doing my math correct, and so like he he didn't have that generational experience. So he's just like a little bit older than this you know, generation that has like written the American story uh, for the past 50 plus years and is still, still hanging around. Um, but I do, you know, something about uh, if he, if he does one, which I think he will. And I, I've been saying for a long time, that I think anyone, I think Mayor Pete would have won. I think Bernie would have won. I think Klobuchar, Gillibrand, whoever, I think they all would have beaten Trump. I think Trump is a very weak candidate. This is before the pandemic. Um, yeah, I think he is too. I think that's right. I think he's weak. Yeah. I mean, who knows, but I think he's weak. <laughs> I mean, basically my argument on that would be, you know, he, he, he won 46% in this semi-freak occurrence. 
and he's not expanded his coalition since then. He's shrunk it. So his, co- so his base right. is something like 35 to 40. He gets like a couple more. I predicted that he's going to get, you know, like 42 and Biden would get something between 51 and 57. Um, so I'll lay my marker down there. But anyway, so, you know, obviously um, Biden is suffering some kind of cognitive decline. And then what if he does win, you know, will he be in charge at any but a nominal sense? And there's some weird parallels with Trump, who also seems to be co- – have a different form of cognitive decline, but is so like, you know, it's a cult of personality and the way he, that he, you know, rages at people ensures that his, uh, his will, which goes, you know, could flip on a dime at any moment is like, is enforced. And so, you know, uh, the, the minions in the, in the executive office uh, scurry around trying to make the bad King happy with Biden. I honestly see more like the old man, is like yeah. going to do a couple things and then he goes and takes a nap or, he, or, or, or whatever. And like, he doesn't seem like the raging, uh, you know, raging madman uh, king. He's more like the sleepy king. And then it'll be so. So his appointments will be very important with, with the Trump appointments, except for a few of them. Um, you know, it seems like whoever is whoever has the job doesn't really seem to matter. Uh, it, whereas it seems like the, you know, the the cabinet and stuff. <laughs> if, if Biden does win the cabinet and those people and the people inside the White House will be the ones really running the show uh, after Biden, Biden provides some broad outlines and the things he's going to say are kind of like more kind of the broad consensus of the Democratic Party, maybe, but maybe more, but more, more towards the center than. Well, than this the is left. the question. I mean, what happens when basically everyone under 45 considers the president in some sense Illegitimate isn't the right word. People would consider him legitimate, but basically not aligned with their interests. That's very – because the division between – You mean the kind of people who would be serving in a normal administration or, or the populace? No, and, and the populace and also like the young well, that's ha- I mean that's happening now, right? Okay. Um, I, I don't think so. I mean I think that the ideological divide between Biden and Bernie is actually pretty stark in a way that the ideological divide between Obama and Hillary wasn't. So I think like what if you have like a bunch of staffers under 45 – and a bunch of uh, young, you know, rising star Democrats who are going to start running for office once once the boomers retire or shuffle off this mortal coil who find the administration not illegitimate, not at all. They'll definitely consider it legitimate in the Democratic sense, but sort of against their interests, particularly in an era of crisis. I mean, this is a big deal. The pandemic is – which we haven't talked about. The pandemic is a really big deal. Climate change is a really big deal. And inequality is a big deal. And, and what I wanted to say is my major explanation for the support – the use support for um, Bernie is that it's very simple. It's a class position, right? Unlike in the 60s, today people from the upper middle class and lower are more precarious than they've ever been before. And I think we've probably experienced this in our own lives, in our colleagues' lives. Even people who went to like top, top schools, a lot of them are more precarious. Who should have meritocratic rat race, a lot of them are more precarious. So you have a, basically a shared class interest amongst a, a, that aligns essentially with youth, which is, again, unique in American history. We've never quite seen that before. So a lot of things are new, and I just don't see how they're necessarily going to play out. I think if I had to guess, I, I, I think if, I, if someone put a gun to my head, I would say Biden would probably win. I think he's going to be a very weak president. Um, and we haven't seen a weak president really in a very long time, in a very, very long time. I would say since the 20s. We haven't seen a truly weak president. Um, right. I mean, it could be like, you know, uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, after he had a stroke and 
But he was even stronger because Wilson's wife was actually like doing things. Well, know, like, I mean, uh, Dr. Biden uh, has a PhD in education or something like that. You know, maybe she could be a very effective. She I seems like a nice be person. More, be more like a Harding administration. Cool. Mm-hmm. Not, not a Coolidge, but a Harding administration where you really have people around the president doing like crazy shit the president doesn't even know about. You know, and also maybe some of the, the late Reagan administration as well. Which we don't like. We're not exactly sure where Reagan's cognition was. It looks not great, particularly in the second term. But like, how the hell did Iran Contra happen? You know, things things like things like that. You might be seeing things like that we haven't seen in quite a while because we'll have such a weak executive, which is not great. Just as again, as a historian who studies the executive branch, crazy shit happens when you have a weak president. You know, who 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 people are not afraid of. And like the American state has many levers of power. No one knows what it's doing abroad, and no one quite knows what it's doing at home either. So I think that would actually be a really interesting slash scary thing to happen, particularly because I do think we need conservative state action on things like climate change, which is like really – it's really despairing that the, the candidates are Biden versus Trump. It's a really tragic thing, I think. Um, I think we this country missed a real opportunity with Bernie Sanders to actually start moving the ship of state in a somewhat better path. And it's, it's actually a real tragic thing that happened. And I'm not just saying this. Obviously, I'm a socialist. But I think even if you're not, Biden is not going to do anything about climate change, global inequality or things like pandemic response. And I think it's a real or the thing that I care about foreign policy. He's not going to do anything. And I think it's a real, real sad thing to have happened to this country. Well, I would I would just say, you know, so we, we have no idea where the pandemic is going to be in January next year. Um, hopefully it is much worse than, hopefully it is much better than it is now. Um, but Biden, I mean, Biden does have this guy, Klain, um, who was his chief of staff, who does seem to know what the hell he's doing. I mean, this guy is a, a technocrat and he, do, he was like in charge of the, uh, response to the Ebola outbreak a decade ago. Um, so I think I, I, you know, th- that is not like this looming thing, like climate change, which there's, you know, essentially, um, you know, a lot of people would have to sacrifice for these, uh, expected gains that would come in 50 or 100 years, uh, you know, with the pandemic, if it, if it gets worse and, you know, more and more people are dying, if it stays in this weird state that it's, you know, we anticipate like the economy's half shut down. So I I think he would focus on that. So that seems like the obvious thing. Like, I assume there will be like some able technocrats who are hired, um, by president Biden. Um, you know, not that many able technocrats were hired by president Trump, um, so, I mean, one person who is seemingly an able um, White House functionary is uh, Stephen Miller, and he has been very, very effective in, in getting his vision of, you know, zero immigration enforced, whereas most of the other, I, I feel like, you know, most of the other people who work in the executive branch are like B and C and D listers because the A listers were too embarrassed to work for Trump directly or, you know, Trump's insanity um, pushed them aside or they couldn't get their ideas implemented um so so you know the the most of the, I, I assume it'll be mostly people who worked in the obama white house uh, like you know like biden was in the obama white house and so it, it will in some ways be a, the, uh, like a restoration and i've said this before the you know the campaign slogan uh, a return to normalcy i think sounds pretty good and now that we have even without the pandemic that would be a good slogan and now with uh this current insanity uh you know just we're getting back to normal you won't have to you know, the president is not going to be on TV two hours every single day saying crazy shit about injecting uh, Clorox into your veins. So, like, you won't have to worry so, about that anymore. A, cu- a couple of things. One, you know who's 
um, slogan was "Return to Normalcy." Of course, yes, I, 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 that's where I got it from. But um, Part- but it makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah no, for sure. Well, he Part- he won, so yeah. What will be our teapot dome scandal? But anyway, <laughs> so uh, no, 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 for sure. And I think I think that's a powerful message. Um, I think it's a totally wrong message historically. And I would say. Again, I'm a critic of liberalism. This is what like I do as a scholar. I think one of the stories one can tell of the last 70 plus years is the failure of technocratic liberalism, which again is an ideology to achieve its goals repeatedly. Um, so I think, uh, again, as a critic of that sort of ideology, I find it very problematic and I'm very despairing that that is going to be the restoration that we'll have. Um, and I predict that it will not be uh, not go particularly well, particularly for the most vulnerable amongst us and the youngest amongst us who have enormous amounts of student debt, enormous amount of debt generally can't afford basically anything, can't afford to have families, et cetera, et cetera. Which actually brings me to the question that we talked about um, before we started going, Aria. I want to know, uh, again, I, I like sort of psychoanalyzing you because as I said <laughs> before, I think you're a little out of step with much most people of our generation believe about the world. And I'm just wondering like why that is and where do you find yourself or your own ideological evolution in the last three, uh, three, four years? Cause I would say the median sort of educated white guy of the under 40 class is, is, is left to further left at this point, particularly downwardly mobile. Um, which I would say the the average person is in this country. So uh, where do you fit yourself into this sort of ideological uh, represented by a vote for Bernie? So where do you where do you fit yourself in this? Um, okay, so so finally finally uh, on my podcast I get to talk about me. Um, so well, I, I don't know. I mean, if I if I were an adjunct, adjunct professor who you knew uh, in, in that circle, maybe I would be you know, more towards the, the right side of things. But I think in the general populace, definitely more towards the left side of things, even if we're saying educated w- white men with beards. Um, you know, glasses. The, the, uh, uh, I, I, glasses. I'm sorry. I usually wear glasses. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I voted for Bernie in 2016. And the, and the reason was um, I uh, wanted to do a, a write-in vote because I didn't like either of them. And the uh, I wanted to vote for Bill Bradley because I was reading um, a sense of, a sense of where things are, whatever the, the, the book that John McPhee wrote about Bill Bradley in as a basketball player. Um, what do you think about Bill Bradley over Bernie? <laughs> oh, I, I mean, Bill Bradley was, was a great guy. I mean, you have to read this book. Like he was a like, <laughs> great guy, but in terms of like policy. Oh, well, I just, I, I mean, I am not a socialist. So, but I also like the Hillary campaign in 2016, I didn't like it all. Um, so I was like, so I, this was kind of a joke, but I was like, okay, I want to, I'll write it. I'll write in Bill Bradley. Also, I grew up in New Jersey. Bill Bradley was a Senator from New Jersey. Um, so I, you know, I knew who he, who he was as a child and he seemed like a good person more or less. Um, and yeah, just this book. It's a great book. I will include the link below. I can't remember the exact title. Sense of Where Things Are, something like that. It's about him as the star basketball player at Princeton in like 1959. And he was the big man on campus and everyone knew who he was. And he was the hero. And it talks about his style of play, which was, you know, like he was the Michael Jordan of like college basketball in 1959. And also he was just like this really smart guy who was like, this guy is going to be president someday. Um, so that didn't happen, but he still became, a, you know, a major an NBA player and the senator from New Jersey. So anyway... Uh, and I was prevented by the old man at the uh, voting, my voting location who said, you can't write anyone in. And I don't know if that was correct or not, or just what the old man said. So I, I voted for Bernie thinking, well, I'm just going to vote for Hillary. She's going to win anyway. Uh, eventually, so I, vote, I did vote for Bernie. I felt the burn. Um, and I was fine with that. And then, you know, this time around, I would have um, voted for Warren uh, if 
if that option was presented to me, um, I don't like. Are they even having the election at this point? I'm I'm, I'm living back in New Jersey now, so I don't know if they're going to do a mail-in election or, or, or what exactly, but um, I would not not be excited to vote for Biden. But I mean, I was essentially a um, Obama Democrat. That was Obama. The Obama away campaign was the last one that I uh, was excited about. It was the last one that I uh, donated money to and felt any sort of uh, actual personal connection to. I, so I don't, I don't get any emails so, from, is, let me just say, I don't get any emails from the DNC or from Bernie or from Elizabeth Warren looking for money because the last time I gave money was in the, during the 2008 primary. So they've lost my email at this point and no one bugs me uh, for donations or to sign a petition or anything. So I, so I basically, I, you know, I felt an identification with Obama. I support him a lot, obviously uh, somewhat disappointing, but I thought he did uh, as more or less as good a job as he could have given the, circumstances uh that he was in there were things i disagreed with but more than i agreed with uh like that guy you know the the character that's a punchline in um get out uh the father who says uh i would have voted for obama a third time like yeah me too i would have voted for obama a third time as well and obviously that character is a villain and is <laughs> is one of like the killers but um but i think that's a sentiment and so the 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 the, the kind of people who are like me actually the sense that i get from the past year or so are really are the Warren people and people I've most people I talk to who are kind of I feel like are like me um, were more Warren fans than Bernie fans. So, um, I, I don't know whether that's a personal identification or a ideological identification, um, but that's where I would put myself now. But I wasn't, but I wasn't, I wasn't like super excited to vote for Warren either. I didn't sign up for her mailing list uh, partially because I don't like getting a lot of emails, but also I was just I would be like, okay, I will vote for Warren. And that's that, but you know things went things went a different way. So that so that's that's kind of where I am now. So let me two things. One, I think that's a clearly a shrinking constituency. It's sort of like the Rockefeller Republicans, the Warren Democrats. There's I don't think that's that's a particularly vibrant constituency. Clearly, she didn't do very well, and I was I was surprised. Um, I I I did predict that Biden was going to win, but I thought Warren would have done significantly better, and she didn't. So let me narrate what I consider to be the millennial general life experience. Born in the 80s, early 90s. You were born. We won the Cold War. Capitalism is great. The United States is going to govern the world and end genocides and no Holocaust will ever happen again. That's, that's our childhood, essentially, growing up in the 1990s. September 11th, 2001 happens. Enormous rise in the security state, enormous rise in surveillance, enormous rise in oppression and uh, sort of breaking of civil liberties in a diversity of ways, both in terms of NSA surveillance of the population, in terms of uh, torture at Guantanamo Bay, the failed invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, followed immediately by the Great Recession of 2008-2009, in which capital is bailed out at the expense of labor or the middle class, because in America we like to pretend we don't have a working class. So the middle class loses to capital under both Bush and Obama. Obama prosecutes absolutely no war criminals, prosecutes, I think, one or two bankers. Um, Then continues basically to uh, the the precepts of American empire, uh, the failed intervention in Libya, doesn't really do anything to help ordinary Americans, has two terms. Um, People are so immiserated that they eventually vote for Trump. That to me is the millennial experience. And I guess I would just in like very brief. So I guess I would just say, I don't think, I just don't see how looking at it from like our own lived experiences one could still have faith in the sort of precepts that govern the United States 
or have faith in the idea that capitalism or American empire is is a positive thing or ha- is has the capability to sort of solve the potentially existential problems that people are facing from like our own lived experience. And that's why I think so many people are voting for Bernie of our generation and lower because their experiences has just been disaster after disaster. And I think you, when you were talking to Dan on here, that's what I thought when you were talking about generational divides, I thought that was really missed um, because I, it's sort of like millennials aren't whiny or complaining or expect X or Y for no reason. There's actually like an empirical basis to our politics that's very obvious and clear. Um, I mean, and you could see it in, in the statistics of sort of home ownership or families or car ownership or, or savings or whatever you may be. I think there's very clear reasons why millennials are quote unquote whiny about the American project because the American project has repeatedly failed and not only failed has fucked them over, which is why I think you see – and it fucked them over, I would add, across class, which is unique, again, in, in, in history. So uh, I was just thinking, given like your own his experience, what makes you believe what the, ma- the majority of us clearly don't? <laughs> well, I guess I'm – you know, I think I am a uh, – fancy myself a kind of uh, – gradualist and a kind of like practical like let's like let's just do what works kind of person unless it what the word i would use would be ideologue but i guess you're saying you know that what i just described is itself an ideology extremely um, ideological that was not what people believed in 1930 this is a product of the cold war you could very clearly trace the development of what you're describing as non-ideological it's a very peculiar way of understanding politics okay that is so very contingent <laughs> i guess i i see like you know, what are the things, you know, okay, so the American system, the, the system of federal government, super complicated, super fucked up, uh, very hard to get anything accomplished whatsoever during non-emergency times. Um, you know, I, so uh, like I said, I was a huge Obama fan. And then uh, the first, you know, the first year or so of the Obama administration was uh uh, the like relief act or whatever they called it and getting Obamacare passed. And as you recall, Obamacare like barely passed, you know, they s- squeaked it through and then it's been challenged ever since. And that was, and, and that itself was like a very, um, you know, centrist kind of like, like the insurance companies got basically got part, like money put in their pockets um, because you had, you know, your people were uh, by law forced to buy insurance. And so that, you know, that like barely squeaked through. So, you know, when Bernie was talking about Medicare for all, if, if I could snap my fingers and we could have Medicare for all, I would do it. Seems like a much better system. Every country that has it likes it. Um, it's, you know, it's obvious. It's it, the good parts of it are very obvious. Maybe there's a, there's a few downsides, but there's so many downsides to the American system, which is a mess. But, the, you know, you need a majority of uh, two houses of Congress, the president, and then uh, Supreme Court review, uh, currently five to four uh six to three you know almost so like getting that so like i don't think bernie could have gotten like bernie had like five big plans i don't think he could have gotten any of them passed and then it would just be reacting to like the kind of events that are happening like the pandemic is mitch mcconnell a gradualist i mean i feel like one side mitch mcconnell is like a procedural radicalist but but like he really believed like and he's like one of the brilliant political actors of our time He's a genius. What he did with Merrick Garland is 
it's like a Picasso painting. No, yeah, <laughs> I mean the Mer- the whole Merrick Garland thing was was a huge. They mis- a- Obama. Mis- that was like probably Obama's Obama's first biggest mistake was appointing Hillary Clinton as a Secretary of State, and his second biggest mistake was uh, nominating Merrick Garland and then fucking it, you know, fucking that whole process up. Well, I just, I guess, I just don't want to say. It seems like one side understands that politics doesn't have to be gradualist and the other side is pretending like it's 1960 and everyone agrees about a set of principles about how the world works while constantly losing to Republicans is what I would say. I would say the Republican Party since the 1990s has had a very, very accurate understanding about how politics works and they have used it to destroy the liberal project and liberals have responded by claiming politics works in a way that it doesn't. And I think the career of Mitch McConnell demonstrates this. He has stymied from an incredibly radical position that was for a time outside the open window and the norms of our society, um, everything that liberals leftists wanted to do. And I think it is profoundly misguided for liberals to be gradualists at this point in time when the Republican Party has demonstrated again and again and again how to play politics? Okay, is but the, what I, would I mean, say. the thing is, it's it, these are not par- these are not mirror images because the Democrats actually want to like build programs and like create things, and the Republicans want to dismantle programs and cut taxes. So the main thing they want to do is cut taxes, and so that's very they do not. That's that's the like, Republicans. What is the what is the big? But what is the what is the big Trump administration? Uh, you know what big law did they pass um, in the past three years before the pandemic? Uh, it was a tax cut. And that's that's really what they care about. They want they want more money for themselves and their rich friends. And then they have some other like associated things like they don't want the the poor little innocent babies to be killed in the abortion clinics and they don't like immigrants. But really, like, you know, the, it, it's easier to maintain the status quo or to just cut taxes than to, um, you know, have a Green New Deal or have or, or build a national health program. Like these are just harder things to do. And that's a problem that the Democrats have to confront if the Democrat if there was a. Like Mitch McConnell's, like you know, uh, uh, the alternative universe. Mitch McConnell, that was the genius of how to work the Senate, who was a senator um, for the Democrats. It's not like he would be able to figure out how to pass the Bernie Sanders agenda through, you know, his mastery of the rules. Like it's just, it's just easier to prevent anything from happening and to uh, cut taxes than, than to do what Democrats want to do. In my opinion, that's a mischaracterization of what they did. Tax cuts, corporate welfare, uh, restricting immigration, those are all positive programs. I mean positive, not positive, good, positive in the sense that they do something in the world. The creation of tax havens, the constant increasing of defense spending, which the Democrats do also constantly. Okay, well, here's something. So, okay, so the, so we've learned over the past three years how much power the executive seems to have when it comes to setting the uh, immigration rules. Uh, but there was one big campaign pledge that Trump had, and that was build the wall. And if you had asked me, you know, in, in November uh, 2016, are we going to have a wall in 2020? I probably would have said, yeah, there's going to be at least a lot of wall there. And like, you know, they've built like 100 miles or something. It's just like, like that's weird. So like, it's it's hard to do anything um, saying, OK, we can't you can't come in. That's easier than actually like physically building something in the real world. And even the thing that Trump like his great idea of building a wall on the southern border that everyone, you know, poo-pooed and somehow he, he ran out and won. And you would have thought, like, he would have concentrated on actually getting this accomplished. Like, they, they haven't done it. Well, so it's just hard to do things in general. Well, I, I would say what he actually did do was get the Mexican president to close down the southern Mexican border, which is a really big deal. 
Okay. Um, okay. So he actually did quite a bit on ending immigration to the United States, and that's a positive program. I just think that the Republicans are much better at politics because they understand what politics is. Like, funda- like let's go philosophy. Fundamentally what politics is, which is you have friends and you have enemies. And the Democrats still abide by the Habermasian idea that public reason will somehow lead to some sort of consensus position that everyone will be get a little, not get a lot, and, and people will be happy. And that might have been true at certain points in American history, but it profoundly misreads the historical moment we're in in a diversity of ways. So I think that millennials have the lived experience of the absolute horror and precarity that is American empire and American capitalism and are therefore voting in that way. And I think it would be incumbent for, for liberals who I would say – got crushed because Warren is, was really their candidate of technocratic liberalism, was just repeatedly crushed to sort of do some soul-searching about why that, that ideology has almost no constituency any longer because it's a completely failed ideology, I would say. Um, well, I, okay, so let's say that, that whatever amendment, um, you know, limited presence of two terms didn't exist and Obama had run in 2016 and Trump had been not – so then – you know, there were, and no one challenged him. Um, and then Trump was the nominee. Do you think he would have beaten Trump? Obama? Yeah, of course. Don't you think? Okay, yeah. so Obama represents something. And it's like he has obviously a complex persona, uh, multiracial, uh, coming from, you know, the far flung part of the country and uh, international background and blah, blah, blah. Um, but he, um, you know, he stitched together this coalition and he won with 53% in 2008 and 51% in uh, 2012, if I have my numbers right. And uh, no one had gotten a majority over 50% who attained the office uh, since um, George H.W. Bush in 1988, I think. Fact check me, please, commenters. So, so. Oh, they will. <laughs> so it's possible that Obama, a uniquely charismatic person with a, a unique personal background, uh, may have stitched together a coalition that can't be brought back through um, unless some other type of, uh, you know, really charismatic, uh, interesting person uh, comes to the fore. Um, and Liz Warren obviously wasn't that person. Uh, she, you know, she's to the left of Obama. She was, she was throwing bombs at the Obama administration. Um, she's from, from an, the I, left. basically everything she's written. She's basically an Eisenhower liberal an Eisenhower era <laughs> liberal. Seriously. That's what, that's what her ideology is. Mm-hmm. Essentially. It's like a, a kind capitalism. And that's what liberals in the 19 liberal Republicans in the 1950s believed, which just shows how far to the right our politics has gone. And our politics has gone so far to the right because the right wing is so much better at politics than the goddamn left. They destroyed the New Deal order. It's really impressive. I don't know. Are you watching that new show, Mrs. America? No, but I want to. Phyllis Schlafly was the best organizer in post-war American history. You know, the right has just taken the tactics of the left that the left was good at in the 20s and 30s and turned it to their own nefarious ends. Um, and I think the left needs to really do some soul searching about why the right is so much better at it and to abandon this gradualism that might have made sense to people in 1955 that no longer works in 2020. OK, I'll just say I, I, I continue to think that the, um, the 2016 election was a like contingent fluke in a lot of ways. And yeah, you know, wh- why Trump won, who let Trump won, what caused Trump to win. There's a hundred different things. But if you like removed like one or two of them, then probably Hillary would have won. And only, you know, does any other country in the world have, have an equivalent of the Electoral College? Like this is a weird system we have. Um, and of course, she won like two or three million more votes than him. Um, but let's um, let's let's go on to our final topic, uh, if that's OK with you. And that, so, that is. Now. Sorry. Are you a communist now? <laughs> Um, yeah, how, what, uh, how many, uh, how many meetings, uh, did I attend in, in 1952? Now, our final topic is, um, the pandemic in historical context. Sure. And 
uh, I mean, the question I have in, I, so I, I wish I could find where this was, but I read a quote somewhere. It may, and it may have been a fake quote, but I, in my memory, it was from Virginia Woolf. And she was saying that there was no, there weren't novels written about the Spanish flu or the 1918 flu or whatever, um, because uh, people were ashamed of how they acted during that time and they didn't want to remember it. And so they, it kind of was forgotten in the historical memory very quickly. And obviously a lot of other shit was happening around 1918. Um, so I, all, how dare you ignore twilight? Edward Cullen died in the Spanish flu. Really? How dare you? <laughs> and he was revived, but he was revived by the dad vampire, vampire or whatever. Vampire. That's interesting. You know, and actually I did see that. I did see that first movie. So I should remember that. But yeah, so it's, I mean, if we think about other things that happened around the time, the end of world war one, the Russian revolution, you know, the coming of like the 1920s and the boom then, like you could, I don't know. It's just, it's just kind of lost in the historical imagination. Do you, is that, do you have any sense of why that is? And, and, and is this period that we're going through now in 50 years or people got to forget about it? Well, um, I think it's lost. I mean, it, it's hard to overemphasize the total chaos of the late 1920s. Uh, this is also a period that I happen to study. So beyond everything you mentioned, which is totally right, I mean, basically Central Europe went under underwent like a series of intense revolutions, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the collapse of the German Empire, you know, the creation of all these new states in Central Central and Eastern Europe, Poland, you know, the creation of, um, you know, the Bavarian Socialist Republic, which was immediately followed by a right-wing republic. And so there was uh, just absolute and total chaos, which was all exacerbated um, by the horrors caused by World War One, a generation of, of, of Europe. European men destroyed and killed. Um, you have food riots throughout, again, Central Europe and Western Europe. You have people starving and things along those lines. So I think it was a maelstrom of events um, that that happened in sort of that 1918, 1919, 1920 period. And I think because there were so many things, particularly the chaos of World War One, is what really imprinted itself on the on, on the imagination of the generation that that the Spanish flu um, and only caused Spanish because my understanding is that Spanish newspapers were more open and forthright about reporting the flu. Yes, I was reading about that too. So, so Spain was neutral in World War One, so they didn't have restrictions on press freedom, and so the, the countries, you know, Germany and France, weren't allowed to print the actual number of people who were dying, but but Spanish papers did. Um, so that so that that that's how possibly the association was created. Right. I think a modern epidemiologist, and I may be incorrect. I think they actually trace it to the United States. Yeah, right. I was looking at the Wikipedia page. That's one theory. It seems like they'll never actually be able to figure out. One theory is that it started in like Kansas or something, but there's a lot of other theories. It could have started in, you know, no, like no, like no. A, like a invalid camp in France or something during, you know, near a, a battle or something like that. And I think Legionnaires, I mean, there was also a lot of other things happening. I think in 1917 is when Legionnaires disease also first exploded in Philadelphia. I mean, so you, it's pre, it, it, it's pre-modern virology, essentially. So you have a lot of these sorts of spreading of, of diseases. But I, I, I do think that this is different for a variety of reasons. One, I think modern communications technologies totally transformed the meaning of it. I think modern medicine totally transformed the meaning of it. I think people are much more aware, generally speaking, of their medical health and health as, as a general phenomenon and, and what's going on. And I do think that this is going to to be a much more important historical moment, at least in historical memory. But this is this is not to say I think the, the so-called Spanish flu um, or the flu of 1918-1919, I think is the more political correct, uh, politically correct way to refer to it, um, uh, was also devastating in its effects and, and like uh, other pandemics throughout history. And I think the most in, in, important one is, of course, the, the black death of, of the 13th and 14th centuries, where you basically have 
there, I mean, there are two, I think, big causes of that. One, people have argued that that allows a certain uh, immunity to arise in Europe, which enabled uh, the colonization of, of the Western Hemisphere a couple of centuries later, which is like an enormous, uh, enormous world changing effect. And it also basically is the beginning of the end of European feudalism. Um, I mean, Europe, feudalism lasts another four centuries, so it's like not – you know, it's not it doesn't end like right away, but it basically helps spur things like um, a particular population movements and urbanization and things along those things that transform European and then eventually world history. So I think that 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 pandemics in general uh, could have a very, very important effects on world history. What this one will be, I think, again, this is just another sort of uh, data set in the in the total failure of the capitalism you love so much. <laughs> just uh, no, I think just another – another. Uh, um, I think we're coming to the end of sort of the Reagan-era neoliberal order, um, that we had the New Deal order from the 30s to the 70s. We had the neoliberal Reagan order from the 70s to roughly the mid-2010s um, or, or 2020s, and I think we're going to see – something new coming and the pandemic is just a further reflection of that and, and you know that that famous Gramsci quote I believe it is where, where the, the old world is something along these lines I'm paraphrasing the old world is collapsing but the new one has yet to be born right. I think that's that, that's one of the reasons why this moment feels so strange um, because I think that the, the assumptions in which we were raised no longer hold but we don't have a set of normative preferences um, or ideas about how the world functions um, now that are going to eventually become common sense. And I, and I think the pandemic has just allowed everyone to sort of reflect on this. And it just feels like, I don't know how you feel in quarantine. It feels so weird. I will never experience this again. And I feel like the overwhelming majority of people today will never experience it again. It's like a real like hinge point in, in my life at least. And I think there'll be pre and post sort of 2019, 2020 in a weird way. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, uh, it's the first kind of like truly global event since World War II, perhaps, uh, but maybe that's overstating it, but like, you know, everyone in the world is thinking about this word, you know, not everyone in the world was really affected by nine 11 or the, or like the great recession or something. Um, uh, so, so there's that, but at the, you know, at the same time, this is, you know, thankfully because of, uh, modern understanding of medicine and, um, technology and, uh, you know, you know, and maybe just the, the virus itself is different. Uh, fewer people are dying than died, uh, in 1918, where it seemed like it was, you know, um, 50 to hundred million or something like that. And as far as we know, it's something like, you know, a uh, hundred thousand or something globally right now. But so, but you know, those, those numbers could change, obviously. Um, I mean, one other thing is that the, uh, apparently the, you know, the, the Spanish flu was uh, particularly lethal towards uh, children, and uh, whereas this one seems uh, to be the opposite of that, it's particularly lethal towards uh, older people or people who are, you know, compromised, something like that. There was a remarkable, I'll, I'll find the link and put it in, you know, the Times has been doing these obituaries of people who were maybe just ordinary people who have died of the virus, and uh, this guy was uh, 100 years old, and he had a um, twin who died in the in the Spanish flu in infancy. And so, the, so the twin was like weeks old when he died and the other guy lived to, to be a hundred. Um, and, uh, but his whole life he was haunted by the sense of, uh, this, you know, this other person who he never got to know who he was like so close to. And he would think, and his survivors, you know, say that he thought would talk about this person off in the, the deceased twin. So this, you know, so that's like one little person and his whole life was, was, Changed because of 
because of this this event. So you know, who knows how many other things like that are gonna um, you know go go through the years. But at the same time, like okay, so if 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 a family loses an infant, you know that's devastating. Um, if a family loses a grandparent, well, that, you know, like grandparents always eventually die pretty much. So, so it's just a, di- a different kind of loss. So, so I, I don't know how those things yeah, line I, up, I, but, but yeah, but just, a, the, the, I think it's interesting. Like, are there, what, what is the great Spanish flu novel? I actually Googled Spanish flu novel and there was basically nothing. There was a couple, one or two contemporary things that came up, but there was no, there's nothing like, you know, there, think of how many novels came out of world war one. Doesn't um, Hemingway discuss it at some point? I thought I thought Hemingway. That's that's possible, but I don't know if there's one devoted to it. Um, no, no, it's not devoted to it. But I think I think it figures in a Hemingway. Make, I mean, that would make sense. Historians haven't forgotten it for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah, but just in the culture, like you know, World yeah. War. I mean, there's more World War Two movies. There's World War One movies, but is there a Spanish flu movie aside from that crucial scene in, in the movie Twilight? Um, I can't immediately think of one. So it, it is just kind of weird how this huge event that killed you know, tens or hundreds of millions of people, it just kind of was ignored or forgotten by, by like the culture. Uh, so I don't know. But you know what it is. I mean, like I knew what the Spanish flu was before the COVID-19 thing. So it's there. Yeah. You know, I, mean, yeah I think most of it heard of it, but maybe didn't know the details. I certainly didn't know the thing about not actually originating in Spain. Um, so yeah. So I don't know, like if you, if you learn about it in history class in high school, maybe you spend, 10 minutes on or something, you know, how much. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it's all, it's often connected to the post world war one, um, sort of collapse <laughs> that just happened throughout like Europe, um, which, which it, it, it is very clearly connected to. Um, but yeah, I, I think if I had to guess the experience of quarantine is going to emerge as the thing that lasts in the popular imagination, as opposed to the deaths would be my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the experience of quarantine is what people will be writing about uh, and, and memorializing. In addition, uh, of course, in addition to the deaths, but I think you're right, the quality of losing children is just factually different than the quality of mostly, not all, but mostly losing people who are immuno, um, uh, immunocompromised above 65. Right. Um, so I think I think that 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 is different. And I think the people who will emerge from this is the creative class who will be continue to be immiserated earning two thousand dollars a class as adjunct professors will nonetheless write things about quarantine. Um, and my guess is that in the next few months, as entertainment companies scramble to come out with products, they're going to have like quarantine shows. Um, which will also be sort of interesting and, and probably be critical in cementing it into the popular. Yeah, they're doing, um, the, the the Parks and Rec uh, creators and cast are reuniting to do a like Zoom episode um, that I think is going to be a fundraiser for something like that. Yeah, so I mean, it is you know we're all connected to each other in a way that they couldn't possibly be a hundred years ago. That's part of it. I wonder once. I mean, the thing is, there's not going to be like a ticker tape parade uh, when this is over because it's just not going to be an over date. But like, how are people? You know, is there going to be like a surge? in, you know, just people getting really, getting really drunk and crashing their cars or, you know, having just like anonymous sex or something because they've, they've been alone for so long. So eyes wide shut, baby. I think we're just going to have a huge national eyes wide shut day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, okay. That's all I want to cover. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? No, this is fun as usual. And I hope all is well with you and yours and in quarantine and that we make it through. (laughs) Yeah, do it. Okay. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, my life has not super changed uh, since this is I work from home before I, I would often leave the house to go work in a coffee shop or something like that and stop. But it's, I don't, you know, I was already used to being, having some isolation during the day. Uh, but 
so it's, it's probably not as bad for me as, as it is for some other people. Um, okay, so we uh, so you uh, you are on Twitter, and what what is your Twitter handle? Oh, uh, my Twitter handle is at d Bessner, just my name, and buy my book. It's the best book ever written. <laughs> I wouldn't just say that. And what is the title of the book? Oh, uh, Democracy in Exile: Colon Hanspire and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual, and it actually directly relates to our conversation. It is essentially about how. Everything that Arya said is not ideological is completely ideological and emerges from uh, a very particular historical context, particularly the rise of the Nazis and making people skeptical of democratic politics. They responded by essentially inventing technocratic liberalism as a means to be at one and the same time, quote unquote, democratic, but not actually listen to the mass of the population. Okay, so check that out. Um, is it, 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 it can people get it on uh, audiobook if, if uh, they're, you know if Amazon is delaying things? I, I was thinking of recording an audiobook myself in a fake British accent, but um, <laughs> they could get it on Kindle for ten bucks. Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah, check out if you have a Kindle, check that out. Uh, so I have nothing to plug. Uh, I'm on Twitter at aryhcw. Okay, so th- thank you, Daniel. Thank you to our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks, Aria. Have a good one.